welcome into the first ever episode of the Hey Coach, It's Blank podcast. I'm Mike Schaefer, and I am very excited to bring you this podcast. I'm even more excited to have Sam McEwen from the Omaha World Herald as the first ever guest on this podcast, which is sort of about breaking down some walls with, you know, who your media members are in the Nebraska media and learning about these individuals, how they ended up in their positions and where the, the media landscape might go moving forward. And there was, you know, as I as I created this project, as I talked with Jack Mitchell and a few others about it, I had kind of a short list of like guests that I absolutely wanted to have on. And I knew immediately who my first guest would be. And it's it's Sam McEwen. And he was <laughs> gracious enough, gracious enough to uh to say yes. And and we have him here today. Sam, appreciate it. Thanks for being the the inaugural plunge on uh, uh, on this podcast. Absolutely, sir. Uh, you guys do great work, and and uh, I appreciate I appreciate your uh, interest in, in talking to me about these things. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we connect really well because neither one of us has uh, lacks an opinion on, on right. most subjects, and I think we both like to I think we both like to pontificate and think about things and maybe pull things apart and examine them in ways that others others may not. And so I've always yeah. kind of felt since, you know, since we met, like I have always just kind of felt like, okay, this is someone that, you know, I can have some really unique conversations with. And we've had some opportunities on different, you know, formats before, but I, I'm really excited to, to kind of dive into this. And, you know, Sam, with you specifically, I mean, I, people know that you're the sports editor at the Omaha World Herald. They know that you are, um, that you were a, a beat writer initially there, but I don't know that they, they understand the the route that you kind of had to take at a time, you know, where I always heard it likened like this when I was younger, especially when I had just gotten into the journalism college, the journalism world and the sports journalism world sort of operates the same way that minor league baseball does where, you know, you, you kind of have to have these stops and high a and, and double a, and then, you know, you hope to get to the show and you encompass that really well. Um, when we first met, I want to say it was 2008, I was working at the Daily Nebraskan, and you were working for the Nebraska State Paper, an online publication that, quite frankly, I didn't know existed at the time. And so when you introduced yourself to me, and we're both covering wrestling and Mark Manning's program at the time, I just remember thinking, what is this? An internet newspaper? That'll never work. And right. here we are. It's 2023, and there's more and more internet newspapers every single day. So in a lot of ways, the Nebraska State Paper was was sort of ahead of its time. You know, it's ahead of its time. It was, yeah. So you know, now you have you have sites that are that are you know online only in the state of Nebraska. The original inception of Nebraska State Paper actually was uh, in 2000, um, and you know, I think I I had a, a short stint at Nebraska State Paper in 2001, right after I left college. I did not graduate from college. Um, I left college. Uh, and I started working for Nebraska State Paper covering the Nebraska legislature. Uh, so I wasn't covering Nebraska football at the time. I'd done a lot of that, obviously, at the Daily Nebraskan. I'd done a lot of things at the DN, but but my first job at State Paper in 2001 was covering the Nebraska State legislature. And I think I wrote a couple of Husker football stories throughout that 2001 football season. And then I think I covered the legislature in 2002 again. And then we were all kind of laid off um, in the spring of 2002. Between then, and, you know, um, uh, 2007, uh, I didn't work in journalism at all. 
Uh, so from like the, I would say the spring of 02 through the, uh, until the fall of 07, uh, I did other, other jobs. Um, I, I, uh, did a lot of things. I read a lot. I probably did more reading during those four and a half years. I lived with a person who was a writer. Uh, we together wrote, read a ton of books. Uh, so I read a lot during that time, but I didn't work in the, in the field, um, at all. Uh, I did a lot of other things. Um, then kind of on a whim, um, and this is after, um, I married my wife, uh, who I married in 06, um, I don't know why I did this, but I was working at a third party administrator for people who don't know what that is. That's an insurance company. Um, and I and, and people who are in Lincoln will remember this name. Tag TMI was the name of it. It has subsequently been bought up by Perot Systems and then later Dell. I was a uh, I was a kind of a claims investigator there. And, uh, and and I had a lot of different jobs there, but that was one of them. And I just decided, I think, on a whim. Uh, I'm going to call up the guy that owns state paper. His name is David Hahn. He ran for governor, I think, in 06. Uh, and I asked him, you know, hey, uh, for $400 a month, and that's what it was, $400 a month, can I come back and cover Nebraska football? And I picked a hell of a year to do it. Um, yeah. You know, I, I picked Bill Callahan's final season. Things, you know, at, coming out of 06, I think there was a feeling that they were going to be really good in 07. They weren't. Um, and so I, I – I picked a heck of a year to start um, when things were completely falling apart, when the House of Osborne, as I say, was sort of restored to its original order, um, where Osborne took back over the athletic department and all those other things, something that was kind of divested of him back in the 90s. Um, and, and so it was a great time to rejoin it. Uh, I, I think I worked for state paper part time for those $400 a month for about two years. I remember that uh, at that time, the University of Nebraska would not, you know, they, I don't think they gave internet sites passes. And so I'd have to use these small town newspapers to request passes for each home game uh, just so I could get in. And there was a couple of situations where I, they didn't let me in. Like, you know, I had to keep using, you know, one group or another group or whatever. And um, when I worked for state paper, sometimes I had to do like remotes where I would go and like be there and hand out, you know, little, little keychains or little coasters or stuff like that. And so it was sort of a sales job. It was a little bit of journalism. There was a lot of things mixed in there. But the one thing about the job that was really good is they, they didn't care what I wrote. I could write anything I wanted, um, whenever I wanted, about whatever I wanted as it related to Nebraska sports. And I did. And uh, that was, there was a lot of freedom and a lot of fun in that. Uh, I still kept the other insurance job, I think, all the way through uh, 2010. So I think I worked until like, so I was still working that other job and, you know, driving as fast as I could down to the press conferences for Bo after practice, doing all those things. So like, yeah, that's where I started. Um, I worked there, I think, through April of 2011. Um, and it was it was an interesting, it was an interesting place to work. No question about it. I, I don't have anywhere near the same experience, but I definitely left. Um, I left journalism briefly, like after college, because there just wasn't a lot of jobs. I worked at the Telegram, and then you know I'm I'm essentially back in Lincoln at a PR job, and there's just something about working sports journalism where you know you you find a way to 
to, to get back into it. And I did that with Huskers Illustrated. You did that with the the Nebraska State Journal. I mean, that had to be um, that had to be a thing where you you know you're you're doing it for four hundred dollars a month. That's obviously not going to cover the expenses of the time and everything that you're going to put into it. But it, it isn't so much about the money. It's to have the opportunity, I think, to just be back around covering a team. Is that you know is that largely what it was you know for you when you were trying to decide in in 2006 or whenever it was you made that phone call i just want to be back around this thing i just want to be back doing daily journalism or as much sports journalism as i can possibly do and this is the best opportunity i have so i got to take it and run with it my my other job I, the people there were were wonderful and they they cared for me very much but um at the end of the day you know i was i was sitting on my computer one day and i was reading the new york times on my computer at, at work and you know like my supervisor came up behind me and i think i got written up for reading the newspaper on the computer because i was caught up with my work and i was like you know i love this this these people are great but i i, just, I can't do this for the rest of my life like and there's a lot of things in there about my personal life and all things that that you know i made poor choices along the way that contributed to me being in that moment but i think i just realized you know this this is not this is not where my heart is. And so, um, you know, I, I had to, uh, I had to explore, you know, other, other things. And, and when I did that, I, I think I made that decision and that choice to, to potentially, well, I reached out to that company knowing that it was sort of still around. And, um, yeah, like I, I decided to, I decided to reach out to them. I didn't give the dollar figure for $400 a month, but I think that's what they were willing to pay me. And um, I used to get my paychecks. You know, you remember that park at 9th and Van Dorn? You know where that's at? Your listeners yeah. know. And it's kind of like grown over now, but there's a, there's a parking lot there. And I used to get, I used to get my, my paychecks from like through a car window. Cause like I, they didn't have direct deposit or something. It was ridiculous. And so I used to like drive over to that park over on Ninth and Van Dorn, and and get and get the uh, get my check through like a window. It felt like a felt like a drug deal. It was really it was really enjoyable. So like there was a lot that I was willing to put up with in order to have the freedom to do what I want. Yeah. So um, as you as you were growing up, like did you? Did you know you wanted to be a writer? Did you know you wanted to be a journalist? Was it was it just something that you kind of fell into? I mean, I I know you spent a lot of time at the DN during its heyday, and I was that sort of what pulled you into this this kind of you know journalism lifestyle. Um, I didn't know I wanted to be a writer. Um, I I probably didn't know that I wanted to be a writer until. Um, I would have put this like I, until my AP English class, I think my senior year in high school. And so I didn't really know before then, like I love sports and I thought maybe I could go into sports broadcasting, but I didn't know that I loved words and writing until my senior year of high school. So I worked in, um, in obviously at the high school newspaper at Millard North, the hoof beat is what it was called. A lot of um, alums in the media that spent time at the hoof beat. That's right. Mr. Brunson spent time there too. Um, great. You know, Mrs. P was my teacher. She was great. 
Um, so, you know, like, yeah, I went to college. I'll tell you what it, what it was. I think I was a broadcasting and J school major. And um, so here's what I did. I went down to like the first week of, of school. I went down to KRNU and I asked um, if I could, you know, do something there. And they said no. And then I went over to the DN and Mitch Sherman was the editor there. He works for the athletic now. Um, but Mitch Sherman was the editor. Uh, and I asked if there was something I could do and I got a golf story. So, you know, um, so I decided to work in, in, in this is kind of how this, that's how life works sometimes. Yeah. You, you go through the door that's open and that was the door that was open. And as far as I could tell, Karen used door didn't open until like you were a senior. So that was kind of, I think it seemed like that anyway. And so like, I just never, I never really walked through that door. I think I was a broadcasting major for a while and then I dropped that. And what my college um, plan. And to be clear, I got an education and I, a good one actually. Um, but my college plan was to take as many classes, um, as I could, uh, in a many, as in, in as many different things as I could. And, um, I just never added up to a, I mean, I, I took like a hundred plus credit. Hours. So I, I just took classes and whatever I wanted to take them in. And so, um, as a result, I learned a lot and did a lot of other things, dropped a lot of classes, added a lot of classes, but, you know, I never added up. And then after the DN, um, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I never had an internship. I should have had an internship. People told me they would give me internships. I didn't take them. I think that's part of my own pathology that I had to work through over time. It has nothing to do with with those with those newspapers. I will say that I know that the Omaha World Herald at the time, at that time, which was in the 90s, they pretty much wanted to get like 4.0 GPAs and I didn't have that. Um, so like a lot of the people who were hired as world Herald interns were just superstars in the classroom. And I wasn't that, um, I don't, that's not necessarily the way that we get interns today, but, but that was what it was back then. You kind of had to be like a superstar student, um, to work there. And so I never worked there and worked at the journal star and work anywhere. Um, just the daily Nebraska. And, uh, yeah, like, I freelanced for like the Fremont Tribune a little bit, but that was it. There's just, there wasn't, it, there wasn't a lot of those things. And then I left the industry completely for five years and I came back and I came back at the right time. I was very fortunate. Yeah. Do you, so I feel very strongly that I wouldn't be where I'm at if it wasn't for my time at the Daily Nebraskan. And I think that's probably true of a lot of our peers, a lot of the people that, you know, uh, worked at the DN that are now in the Nebraska media, whether it's sports media or not. I mean, there's some of the best writers that you're going to read producing stuff, you know, spent time at the yes. daily Nebraska. And, and right. I, I, I'm really curious, like what, how valuable was that period of time for you? Because I, I know that nobody at Anderson wants to hear this, but I got far more out of my experience in college working at the daily Nebraska than I ever did, you know, through the journalism college. There isn't any question. Yeah, I, I learned a lot more at the Daily Nebraska than I ever did at the J School. I'm not trying to be rude to them. They were terrific people, wonderful uh, mentors, uh, wonderful teachers. Um, you know, I, I, you know, do I speak once a semester at the J School as part of a World Herald program that I really believe in called the Real World. We didn't have that back then, but mm -hmm. but they do now. Um, you know, I think uh, I learned a lot at the Daily Nebraska because you learn how to make mistakes. Um, you learn how to work with your peers. So you learn yeah, how to work with people. Thing. You learn how big to work thing. with people. 
you know, and, and you don't really learn that in the J school as much because in the J school, you're kind of working on your own in a lot of circumstances, but you're always working for like a professor or a mentor at the DN. You're working with your peers and you learn how to navigate, um, you know, grudges and frustrations and rivalries and anger and all kinds of stuff. And you learn, you learn to roll with the punches um, and you learn to compete. And I think within the university system, it's hard to learn how to compete. The only thing you're competing for there are awards. And I'm, I'm, I'm not a big awards culture person. I'm not. Um, But, you know, that's not my goal. My goal was never to get an internship. My my goal was never to, to win awards. My goal was just to compete with the people around me and to do as, as well as I can and then write for my own joy. And I think the day when Nebraska gave me that opportunity, I did a ton of stuff there. Um, yeah, reviewed movies there, was an opinion editor there, did a lot of different things, was a designer, learned how to design. All those things I learned in four years. It was a terrific education. If I don't go to the University of Nebraska, I don't work at the Daily Nebraskan, and I'm not where I am now. Yeah, I feel the same way. I just think there's such a difference in writing for an audience at large than writing yes. whatever the assignment was in your classroom. And I think That's the right. challenge the the challenge is figuring out okay i'm not writing for one individual because so much of your scholastic education is you're writing for a teacher so if you can figure That's out right. how to write write for one specific teacher you're going to be able to get a good grade on your writing whether it's well written thorough or anything not because I mean, that's how it was for me like if, if i know who my teacher is that's grading it i'm going to try to work backwards and figure out what it is that they want um you know, in the writing. And so I, I just think with the DN, you don't have that. You get, you get the whole audience and whoever's going to read it. And so then right. I just think you have to approach it a different way. And I think that's what helped me. Um, and so I think that's why, I think that's why it's so valuable. And I think that's why the daily Nebraska is always, you know, the thing that I'm going to view most fondly when I think of the university of Nebraska, like it's just such an instrumental thing. And then just the amount of people, like even when I was there, I mean, Max Olson, who's one of my good friends now, yeah. Um, you know, he's at the athletic as well. Like you're, you're constantly, you said this, you're constantly sort of competing with each other, even though you're writing different stories and like Chris Knowlton would write a great story. And it's like, okay, Max and I have to try to go top that or yep. Max would get this insane exclusive. And it's like, all right, I'm going to get Howard Schnellenberger on the phone. Right. Why? Because, you know, I have the opportunity to do that and I'm going to do it. And yeah. I just, there's nothing that, that can match that for me. And so I, I am really curious now that you work in an actual, an actual functioning newsroom, which you could never really say the DN, you know, <laughs> sometimes we put papers out in spite of everything going on in them. Yeah. Room. Oh yeah. Uh, what, you know, do you, is that sense of competition? Is that still part of it for the, the people that, that work at the world Herald? I mean, I, you, they all have their own beat but it sometimes feels like that competition can help drive you to get better in your job. Yeah. I think there's, you know, what I would say is the within the context of the world Herald, I think it's more of a, a teamwork aspect. Like, I think you feel good. That's like, if I'm a sports writer and we have a news writer that, that, that breaks the story open, like Henry Cordes wrote this piece on Leslie Arnold and, and you know, like it's amazing. It's about a guy that escaped from the Nebraska penitentiary Nobody really knew where he went. Henry found out where he went and that he had this whole second life after he escaped. I just, there's nothing really there, but pride. Like I'm just excited that we had that. And I work for a newspaper news organization that had it. I never would have been able to do what Henry did. Um, And it's, you know, it's made worldwide news and all that stuff. So uh, 
I think there's some of that. I, I definitely, you know, when you're working at a newspaper that has as much talent as the World Herald has or has had over the years, I think there's definitely a sense of, well, that guy did that and 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 she did that. We've got to find a way to we've got to find a way to hold our own. You know, I don't know that I ever felt like and you can ask other people who have worked with me um, whether I'm that person that that ever gets whatever when uh, when my colleagues do really good work. I, I don't feel like I am. I feel like I'm really excited when people do good work that isn't mine. Uh, when people win awards that I didn't win, like it, that makes me excited. Um, but yeah, there's no question. Like if Evan will write a story or, or when Dirk worked with us, when Dirk would write something, you, you do, you want to, you want to step it up. You want to, you want to write something that people remember. Um, certainly Tom Chattel's written a lot of things over the course of his career that move needles. Um, and, and, you know, because I work with Tom, I have the, I have the option and the honor of seeing like when he walks in a room and like how that changes the people that we're talking to. And I'm like, <laughs> it doesn't change when I walk into the room, you know? And so like, that's cool to be a part of that, but it's also like a reminder of his reputation and what he's established. And a lot of people don't get to see that. Like he doesn't, he doesn't really, you know, he doesn't go to press conferences and try to dominate. Um, but he goes into a room where it's like just four people and you recognize very quickly uh, who the more most important journalist in the room is. And it's not me. So that's cool uh, to be able to see that. And I, and I, and I appreciate uh, his stature um, around, around people. So let's dive into a little bit of the actual, you know, day to day of a, of a beat writer. I mean, you, you did that for several years before you became the sports editor at the world Herald. I, I feel like the most thankless job in sports journalism sometimes is just being the, the beat writer. Like yeah. I, you know, like the, everyone wants to be a talking head. Now everybody wants to, to provide analysis. I feel like the art of just going over there, listening to what the coach said, reading between the lines, having that, it, like that, that feels like that's gone a little bit now. Uh, yeah. in our current media environment as a, as a sports editor, how do you sort of acknowledge the value of what those beat writers like Evan Bland can bring while also knowing that more often than not, the strongest engagement that you're going to get is from the analysis pieces, whether it's from Tom or from you or when Dirk was there, it just, you know, it's, it's one of those things you have to blend the business side with also acquiring that information that, you know, is valuable too. I just think that the, there's almost been this blend of where people used to just want the straight news. And now it feels like everybody wants analysis with that news too. They do. And I think that's a really good point. Um, I do think there's value in good beat writing um, in, in having sort of a, you know, a good, well-reported approach. Most beat writing, just so we're clear, does take a little bit of the perspective of you're writing for people who ultimately want the team that you're covering to win. And so like you do see like rarely are they TJ Simers, you know, openly oppositional writers. Like there, there are a few beat writers in history that were able to pull that off, but very few do. And so I think there's always a sense of, you know, you're mindful of, you know, building relationships, building sources, 
um, being able to call people and have those moments where, where when you need to have something, you've got it. I've had, I've had coaches in my career where that was true. I've had some where it wasn't. Um, I mean, I never, and maybe this is not, maybe this was, this is, this was true for you, Mike, but you know, Scott Frost was just not, that wasn't a relationship I had. Uh, I don't know that a lot of people did, um, but like it was, you weren't going to get Scott to confirm or that just wasn't, that just wasn't it. Um, so he was probably the coach. If I was going to pick a coach that I really never got to know, that might be the guy. And you, but you still knew Scott. That was the problem is you knew all the things about him based mm-hmm. on being here, but you didn't really know him. And so I think it's important to know the coaches um, a little bit and to understand things from their perspective, even if you don't agree with their perspective. Um, I think, you know, speed is important. Accuracy is important. Um, ec- economy is important. Like I had always endeavored from a writing perspective to write in a way that was efficient and economical enough that like, by the time you got done with the story, you wanted to read it again because you knew it was pretty good, but you, but I didn't waste your time. And I think one thing that's very true today, and I write a Monday column that's very long. It's about 2000 words. So it's about, you know, I don't know, 80 inches or something. The rewind. Yeah. But I think one thing that is very true in today's journalism is people just write too long. And, and I have kind of a short attention span, even though I love to read books. I like short stories probably more. And so, like, people just write too long. They, they write for too long. They waste your time. You can lose interest. I think people, you know, today write more, probably a little too much for awards and a little too much for other journalists of like, yeah, man, you really, you know, all that. And they don't write enough for their the, the people that they're writing for. And so I think you can, you can get, you can run into a habit of, of writing too long. So when I was a beat writer, I tried to write pretty short, pretty punchy, um, try to be vivid where you can. Um, there's still value in that. There's, there's been really good beat writers that have come through here uh, that have left. I mean, Evan Bland's a really good beat writer on baseball, even though he doesn't work here anymore. You know, the journal stars Parker Gabriel was a beat writer and he was a good one. Um, and we enjoyed, you know, competing against him when he would get things that we wouldn't get, you know? So like, there are people who are still really good at that. And, and um, I respect that, you know? Uh, yeah. It's, it's a little bit of a lost art and, and it, it can't, some of that is because I think like I was the kind of beat writer that was also writing columns. Everybody knows that about me. Right. Uh, that was part of the deal. Like when I went over, I said, Hey, you know, what made me, me at the state paper wasn't writing 500 word AP style. Like you're going to have to let me write. And you're going to have to let me do the things that I think people actually want, you know, that wanted to read from me. And there'll be people who tell me that they don't like me much anymore, but they used to like me when I worked at state paper. And I'm like, that's fine. You know, I don't, I don't know what to, to say to them. <laughs> I'm like, okay. You know, I know how much better of a writer I am now than I was then, but, um, but certainly I wrote with my, you know, very much with my heart on my sleeve back then and wrote more like a fan might, um, so, you know, I think, yeah, beat writing is important and it's, it's very valuable. And I'm glad that we have Evan. I'm glad that we have other people who are really good at it at the world Herald. You know, so we uh, create and beat writers, Joel, Joel is plugged into literally everybody on that team. Like he knows everything about what's going on with Creighton, And it's pretty cool because that, that has not been an easy program to know. And he knows, he, he knows what's going on. He'll always like, he'll tell me a day before stuff breaks, Hey, this is coming. Here's what we're going to do. And so, um, we've got some really good beat writers there right now. How so? Obviously, we both 
largely, and then you certainly several years before me, largely had the same kind of experience with what the media was like in the early 2000s relative to, to what it's now uh, with all of this size. What's the biggest challenge yeah. for you and for your reporters right now in 2023 as you're covering Matt Rule and his staff while also acknowledging that on any given day, there could be 45 other media members just there. Great. Like how do you, how do you get creative? How do you bring stuff that no one else is bringing when we're as oversaturated as we've ever been as a, as a Nebraska media? That's a really good question. I, I, I'll tell you that that's a question you can ask other people and they're going to give you maybe a little bit different answer um, from than me. I think what you might hear from, from people who are better the reporters than I am or different kinds of reporters than I am as well. You know, I would love to have more time and access um, to a person and be able to ask certain questions and, and, uh, and, and be able to, you know, really dig in and spend the time and, and, and all of those things. And I, I certainly agree with that and appreciate that. I think for me, when I go to a media session, I'm always thinking about a couple of things. One, what is the person saying between the lines? What are they not saying and what are they saying? And how do they answer questions from us? I actually get a lot out of press conferences. I think they're, they're I think they're more telling than most people do um, because I spend a lot of time thinking and reading people. So I watch a lot of pressers um, and I pay attention to that. And, and I, and I try to, I try to watch the person's, um, you know, facial reactions, the way they look at things. So I spend a lot of time building into the meaning of just those five or 10 minutes because that's what I've got. So I'm going to really put into it. Uh, the other thing I'm always thinking about is, how does this how does this conversation that they're having right now um, contribute to how we explain why Nebraska football, in this case, wins or loses? Um, you know, like how do how do we how does that contribute to how they win or they lose? Like I'm always trying to think about about that. I'm always trying to think about, you know, the way Scott would say something or the look on his face or how he would respond. Um, you could always kind of tell when he was annoyed by a question, by the speed with which he would answer the question and the, the, you know, the fullness with which he would do it. I would always ask him about his wide receivers because they weren't very good. They weren't. And, and it bothered him. I knew it bothered him. He's like, I think he was like, dang, like this is the one thing I felt like I was going to really get right here is we're going to have a bunch of badasses, um, you know, running routes and they did not. I mean, they had Wandale and a few others, but that was a real challenge for him. So I'd always watch his response to that, you know, with, I've have to do some basketball beat writing and with Fred Hoiberg, you know, Fred is such a polished professional that you really have to, you really either have to be asked like specific kinds of challenging questions or you have to like really ask a bunch of questions in a row to break down that, that wall that he has. He's really good at being polished and sort of monotonous and giving the same answers. But I watched a really good reporter who doesn't work here anymore, Jimmy Watkins, who now works in Cleveland. And he's a good reporter. Jimmy Jimmy has a lot of traits that I don't have. And I don't want all of Jimmy's traits, but the one that I really appreciated is that dude would ask so many questions in a row. And he would piss Fred off. And that's where you needed to get Fred in order to get him to be honest. Is you needed to get him to a point where, like, you're seven minutes in, and he's ready to get up. And you, I'm sure you've watched his pressers. And like he he's ready to get up like all the time. And like Jimmy would have one more and that would be the one that Fred would sort of let things back a little bit. That's the that's the talent 
the thing that I always think about is I don't want to be the person who asked the first question. There are people in the media pool, in any media pool, anywhere who want to be that person. I don't really want to. Um, I think I've done it once or twice. I did it with the onside kick because I couldn't believe it at Northwestern. But I usually don't ask the first question. I try to ask the fourth or the fifth or the sixth question because I figure by then there's going to be something I can pick at and the coach is warmed up. Like his emotions are starting to flood into where he's at. And that's the moment you ask that question. So those are the things that I think about of trying to differentiate um, myself. And then I always just think about the room and how it plays and all the rest. How do you, how do you feel? And you might be the first non 24 seven person I've ever asked this question. So here we go. How do you feel about this idea that that is certainly out there um, that the Nebraska media needs to be more adversarial in its relationship with the coaches. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious what, like how you sort of approach that. I know how I feel personally uh, when, when it gets brought up that we're not aggressive enough or hard enough or whatever. I think that tends to be more the emotion of individuals that are watching the game from the fan perspective. But I, I also just don't think it behooves anyone for an adversarial relationship between the people at the podium and those of us sitting asking the questions. I, I think I'm probably one of the more adversarial question askers. Um, and maybe you don't agree with that, but I do. Um, I feel like, you know, after Nebraska lost to Purdue in 2015, Mike Riley's sitting on that bucket, you know, in, in the, in the stupid locker room that Purdue had. And I like Mike. I talked to him still. He's a good man. Mike Riley's a good guy. Uh, didn't work here, probably wasn't going to work here. But I remembered asking him, I said, is it that you can't run the ball or you won't? And it was just that direct to him. Um, And they didn't run the ball that day at all, as you might recall. And he, Mike being Mike, he looks at me and he goes, he smiles and he goes, both. (laughs) So, you know, he's pretty good at disarming you. That wasn't a great answer, but he, he, he answered the question. Um, I, you know, I think I've asked adversarial questions before, not as adversarial as Dirk. Dirk was probably a better question asker than anybody, but, um, I think there's, I think, I think there are ways in which you can do it, but for the most part, what you're trying to get out of the coach or an athlete is you're trying to get their heart. You're trying to get them to tell you what they're thinking or what they're feeling. And I just don't see a lot of advantage in ever doing that to an athlete short of them doing something morally inappropriate, you know, like getting a personal foul where they kick somebody or something, you know, that, then I think you ask, Hey, you know what, there's a different moment there, but there's very rarely a purpose behind a player usually feels horrible when they make a mistake and they'll tell you Mm -hmm. Um, with coaches. I think there come there, there become moments where you have to ask the question that everybody was thinking about, you do it in a professional and somewhat respectful way. And there may be, there are maybe certain circumstances where you're a little bit challenging. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I I think for the most part, uh, the Nebraska media pool does a pretty good job. I respect a lot of people's questions. I'll always, you know, I try to tell people when I thought they asked a good question, oftentimes people have way better questions than I do. um, And I, and I appreciate that. Um, there's things I don't think about that they'll ask. Uh, so yeah, I, I, you know, I, I try to learn from the people who are doing it too. We've lost a few people who were really, really good. Again, Jimmy was one of them. He was a good question asker. And then we had another guy 
Chris Hetty, who's now a, a journalism teacher in, in uh, Kansas City, who was just really good too. Like then better than me. Like I, my I don't know that I would describe my gift as being like an elite reporter. Um, I think I'm pretty good at it. I think I'm good at reporting certain things, but not necessarily always asking the just so question. But I'll ask the hard question, the question that has to be asked in the moment that it has to be asked. I'm happy to do that. And a lot of people do not want to do that. Yeah, I think it's I think there's one of the challenges in the job is trying to get the information that you're seeking without immediately putting someone on the defensive as you ask the question. Right. And so where some might not view a question as as being strong enough, like I do think that part of what you have to do and you have to do this quickly. Like, I, I always feel like the underrated aspect of our job is that when you're put in these situations, one, you never know how anyone's going to respond. Right. And two, you have to be able to process information through your brain, get it out through your mouth in the form of a question that is going to provide information back to you that you're actually seeking. And it has to be instantaneous. And I, yes. I always feel like that's the part of our jobs that sort of gets underappreciated by the public at large. Like anyone can watch a football game and offer thoughts on it. Anyone can ask a question, but can they actually get information out of that question and go in with a plan or learn something on the fly and then continue to, to pull apart on it? Like, I, I feel like that's a difficult part, um, you know, of the job that sort of gets washed under the, the surface. Like people don't see that. No question. I completely agree. Like, I, I think that's the hard, that can be the hard part of the job. Um, trying to think on your feet. Yes. No question. Like they say something and then you say things like why, or, you know, what, what, what thing, like what, what play that kind of thing. You have to try to get as much detail, you know, just like specific detail as you can. And, and that can be, uh, you know, Bob Diaco had the, you know, the no reasonable reason quote. Um, and I, I remember I was the one asking him some question about the defense and he goes, you know, he goes, it's just ridiculous. It's, it's ridiculous to expect that we would be, you know, where we need to be in this moment. And I looked at him and he was, you know, he, I don't know where he was in that moment. And I said to him, I'll bet you'd like to be though. Right. And that's when the no reasonable. And then he looked at me and he goes, there's no reasonable reason. And that's when the quote came out and it wasn't really a question that I asked him, but I was almost smiling. As I said, I'm like, I bet you would like to be, <laughs> you know, and it, 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 you know, Bob was a guy who really deeply wanted to talk. Bob would always say he doesn't want to talk, but, but Bob really wanted to, he wanted to say everything. Well, you wanted to be understood. So all, all you had to do, yeah, he did too much. So, and so all you had to do was like, just keep the, keep the line of dialogue going a little bit. And he knew he would, he would, he would just talk more. Um, there's other coaches that have been hard to, you know, just hard to, to navigate. I was never very good with Doc Sadler. I don't think Doc really cared for me very much. Um, I don't, I, 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 yeah, I wasn't, the brief time I was covering Nebraska basketball for state paper. Yeah. I don't think Doc really, he was, you know, I think he thought I was an idiot and, and, and I, you know, I am, but Doc was probably the one who was like, yeah, I, I, I don't really care what you have to say, you know, and he turned to the two guys that always asked the questions. So, um, you know, that, that happens too. Like sometimes you just don't click or connect with, with a coach. I, you know who else I never clicked and connected with really? 
was Mike Cavanaugh. No kidding. No. Yeah, like everybody loved Cav. I was like, this guy doesn't did not appear like me. And there were multiple times he'd look at me and he'd go, he'd look at somebody else and say, next question. But also I'd be like, I, you know, you say wow. the same stuff over and over. Like, okay, you know, thank you. Like, I just didn't, there came a point where I was like, this guy does not want to talk to me. And, you know, you're going to run into assistants like that who just don't, you know, that don't want to talk to you. Meanwhile, I got like Carl Polini, who a lot of people had a hard time with. I mean, Carl would, Carl was great with me. Oh, so, you know, I, I mean, he was terrific. Carl was fantastic. It helped that I was always yeah. wearing Cleveland gear and he always, he'd march right up and he'd let me know in the spring where they were in the standings. And then he'd want to know my thoughts on everything from CC Sabathia trade to, <laughs> everything else but i mean i it's so you know his he's such a lightning rod around here but my yes. relationship with carl polini was as good as any relationship i had with an assistant coach and he i was, was a student reporter he was, he was, in that and way. he was he was very much one of those guys that if he liked you you were just in it didn't yep. you know and that's how it always felt and it you know as a student reporter i was just like holy crap the defensive coordinator is coming up to talk to me yeah and it, it that's that's pretty sweet. Faulty. Yeah. But it's a little things that really do that when you're building those relationships. Yeah. And, you know, like Mike Eckler and I, you know, and Mike, Mike was only there a couple of years, but he was another one where like, if you were to, I mean, Sip, Sipple still calls him to this day and like writes about him. And I'll sometimes read that. I'm like, what, why do you keep calling a guy that was here for a couple of years and was mostly known for jumping into people's arms? But, you know, like, <laughs> Like Eckler's another one where I was just like, you know, this guy does not. I asked him a question one time about, you know, the previous game. Uh, they were playing the Texas Tech or something or Missouri. And I'm like, because he memory shot off his mouth about how good their defensive game plan was going to be against Missouri. And then they then they blew it. And we hadn't had a chance to talk to him until after that game. And so it was like midweek. And I'm trying to ask him about that. And he looks at me and he's like, you know, um, well, you know, I, I just said that I'm not going to talk about Missouri. And I said, well, yeah, I understand that. But, you know, you said all those things last week. And he goes, what did I just say? And I'm like, okay, we're done. Like, thank you. Okay, you're fine. Like, you're not my dad. <laughs> you're not my coach. <laughs> so, like, you know, there's there's those moments where, like, you'll get people who are just – and I don't, like, get combative in that moment. I'm just like, okay, now I know. Like, we can't ask you a question that might – frustrate you because then we're going to get that response so like i kind of didn't ask him as many questions going forward but then there were other people who you know could get mad but if they always it always felt like you could talk to them like they'd always go you know they'd always go back and forth with you barney cotton was a great guy and we were too hard on barney cotton to be really honest with you yeah um, no, that's fair we, we were uh but he was great i mean barney cotton was great ross Ells would have a good back and forth with you and and he was he was good uh, a lot of those guys were, you know, were, were actually pretty good guys. Um, you know, they worked for somebody that I think was a little unstable at times, but you know, and a lot Riley had a lot of guys that I liked too. I just, I never quite connected with, with calf. Like he would just, he just didn't like my questions and, and that's okay. That, that happens sometimes. You hope it doesn't happen with the head coach. Yeah. Let's uh, let's kind of finish up um, kind of your initial thoughts on, on Matt rule. Uh, he's been here since December. You've had plenty of conversations with him. I believe you've had at least one sit down with him. We have, um, yeah. maybe, maybe more, but at least one. And I'm just, you know, I, I'm curious for me, because we've covered a lot of the same coaches. 
he could not be more different than anything I've seen in Lincoln so far. He's probably, and, I, and I'm not trying to say this to get, and this is what's difficult because if you say something positive, it's like you're just trying to blow the smoke. But I'm, I'm trying to say this from a comparison of the other coaches I've covered. He seems, despite having never coached a game here, and maybe that's the key, by far more comfortable in his skin in Lincoln as the head coach of this program than Scott Frost or Bo Pelini ever did to me. And, you know, I don't know how comfortable Mike Riley was, uh, but he he certainly felt like he could be himself. But I don't know that it was to the degree of what we've already seen from Matt Rule. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on Matt Rule at this point, uh, having had, you know, both, you know, private conversations or more one-on-one conversations. And then of course, you know, watching and following him at large. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And I'd go, I mean, he's, he's not like Osborne. Um, and Osborne was a unique, uh, I don't know if you had a chance to cover him. I don't think you did. Just as an AD. Yeah. You know, he was, it was like kind of a little bit like talking to God toward the end there. I came in 96 and 97 and it was, you know, he'd run around the track and then he'd come and talk to you. And it was, it was like, it was, it was unique. So it wasn't like that. Um, Solich, it wasn't like that. You know, Frank's a really good guy, but he, he obviously had to deal with not being Tom and you, you could always kind of tell. I covered one year of Bill, you know, Bill was, yeah, he's rules, nothing like him either. Um, yeah, rules different. Um, I do think that, you know, I've tried to spend a lot of time in the, in, since he's been hired, not just like talking to him, but also studying all this, all the speaking things that he's done online. Um, he's talked, you know, a, in front of church congregations. I've tried to pay close attention to the, the stories that have been written about him. Um, I do think he's got a little bit of a, a, of a, of a pastoral approach to it. Not, uh, you know, not like a, a past, uh, not like a church out in the middle of nowhere, but sort of a city pastor, um, kind of a mentor type uh, who, who can talk pretty quick and, can size people up pretty quickly and, and, and wants to build relationships. I do think he has that gift. Um, I think he, what, what's going to be really interesting to me, Mike, is the way that the football games unfold. Because if I, I think I have right, what I think is going to happen, the football style is going to be, you know, a little bit of a little bit of PJ Fleck, a little bit of '90s Penn State when they could throw the football a little bit with Kerry Collins or whoever. I don't think it's going to be like this swashbuckling style. So, like no. Scott Frost was really pretty boring most of the time, but he had this wide open offense. Chip Kelly's the same way. I think Matt Rule's going to be sort of a pro style, you know, stick to your ribs kind of football. Um, but I, I, I find his culture building stuff really interesting. So I think he's really invested in building culture stuff. So I've, I've gone out and got the book gridiron genius by Mike Lombardi, who's one of rules mentors and read that. Um, and so I think he really thinks about problems, not just through the lens of, we got to get better at football. And that's, I think that's kind of what Mike Riley did most of the time. He's, he, he's forgotten more football than I think most coaches have remembered, but I think what Rule does is he starts with the culture piece and he tries to think about what it means to build a good team and a good culture. And I think in Carolina, he wasn't able to do that because of COVID. And we will never know what he would have been able to do or not do if the first year he was there um, wasn't related to COVID. I do think he has to have things kind of his way. 
which is okay. A lot of coaches do. I think he's going to hire his kind of coaches. He's going to have his kind of players. And I think the athletic department needs to, you know, it's got to bend his way. He wants grass fields. He gets grass fields. Um, he wants to be able to put the team in a dorm for a training camp. He's going to put team in a dorm for a training camp. Um, you know, the, so there's things about him. He He's going to ask for things that he expects to get them. And, um, and it's all in the service of building a culture. And so I've tried to pay a lot of attention to what he says when it relates to culture and why he makes the coaching hires he does. Um, some people, some people when they're coaches want like what Abraham Lincoln had, a team of rivals. I don't think that Matt Rule wants a team of rivals in his, in, in his Oval Office. I think he wants a team of guys that sees things the way he, he sees them and are his guys. And we're going to find out. I think one thing we'll find out about him is if those hires uh, strategically you know, do all the things that, that, that you want him to do in this league. But, but he is unique in that way. He talks to us, he talks to us like normal people. Um, he says, sometimes he'll say things that we all kind of already know, but we, he doesn't force us to ask four times for it. You know, um, I think he's past that stage of his career. He's, he's mature. And I think Scott was just getting there. So there's things that Scott would, 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 would hold back because I think he just wasn't, he just hadn't been a head coach very long and he didn't realize how exhausting that was to us and to him. Um, and I think rules already worked through all that, you know, like he's, he's on the other side of it. Bo was the same way. Bo had not been a head coach very long and he acted like it. He acted like, you know, it was DEFCON two every single day. And it's not DEFCON two every day. Um, it took him a long time to learn that. And so Bill Callahan didn't, hadn't really figured it out either. They had too many. And Mike Riley was the only one who rolled with the punches and Mike didn't really have a chance here. He, that was not going to go well the minute that he lost a couple of games in a row. There were people who didn't want him to be the head coach. So, and and he wasn't after three years. Uh, and then they went and got the guy they wanted, and that didn't go well. And so now everybody, I think, is like, all right, this this faction's going to sit down and, and, and be quiet, and this faction's going to sit down and be quiet, and they're just going to let Rule and Trev Alberts do what they want. You know, as you were talking, I hadn't thought about this. Going all the way back to basically Bob Devaney, uh, Matt Rule has more head coaching experience than almost anyone else that uh, has been in that chair. I mean, I guess Bill Callahan was a head coach um, for the Raiders, but Frank Solich was his first coaching job, head coaching job at the collegiate level. Tom Osborne, first head coaching job at the collegiate level. And, you know, Bo Pelini, first head coaching job, collegiate level. Scott Frost, second job collegiate level so I mean that that maybe speaks a little bit to why things feel a little different there is a veteran coach in the chair uh for the first time and I think that uh I think that's that really kind of makes things maybe easier for all parties um and that's it's just been noticeable how different things feel uh with a different head coach and certainly everything's easy right now obviously when you're undefeated you haven't coached a game or any of that Sam, I, I want to finish up with this. If Nebraska actually starts winning games, if Nebraska starts to win games, just how big can this media contingent get? It can get bigger, um, but it's pretty big now. And I think, you know, I think what will happen is you, you'll just see more and more intense coverage. I think you'll see some people get more engaged. 
Um, so I think what you'll see is you'll see the news side folks come down, right? So like the news side folks of TV stations and newspapers, and whatever, they only come down now when there's something wrong or it's, or they're hiring the coach, the, the coach's first day. But if they start winning, you remember, this is 2010. And remember Sean Fisher got hurt. Yeah. Like it was, it was, a. Uh, it was like breaking news all over the planet, what his injury was. <laughs> and, and like, there were moments like that in 2010, it felt like the circus came to town for about, for about two months. And little and, did we know the biggest part of Sean Fisher getting hurt was the ascension of Levante David. That's right. One of the best linebackers in the collegiate level and the NFL level. I know. Never happens about it. It doesn't. That's right. And that for about two months there, it felt like the circus came to town. Like it just, they beat Washington, you know, they played crappy against South Dakota state, but then they go down to K state and just, you know, crush them. And everybody kind of looked around and it's like, is this real? And I remember going into the Texas game and I saw somebody from the athletic department and uh, we were kind of walking in, this is 2010 Texas. And, and he just looks at me and he goes, isn't today just great. And then the expectation was Nebraska was going to win the game. Right. And I was like, yeah, he's like, it's great. And like the emotions were just starting to pour out of people. And then they lost that game. And then like, then they won a bunch in a row and then they went to A&M and that's when things fell apart. Like, you know, the circus left town and it kind of came back a few times in the big 10 era when Bo Pelini would curse somebody out or whatever. But um, if it ever got back to that, my goodness, it would be first, it'd be a lot of fun. Uh, and second, it, it, yeah, the, the, the media's contingency would grow. Um, you know, where, where Nebraska football is now is kind of like where we have our press conferences until they finish that media room. <laughs> it's on the second floor of Memorial Stadium, and it's like an empty concrete concourse, and it just feels like it feels kind of depressing. <laughs> and I think that's where Nebraska is. They need to they, – they need, they need something to change um, because I think – it's going to be hard for Nebraska to struggle for like 10 or 15 years. People, people around here will, will start to feel, I think, sad. Um, and so I think it's important that rule turn it around, but you just never know. You never know. We may, it may be our responsibility to cover the program. That's like an empire in decline. That may be what our lot is. And you know what? We'll do the best we can. All right. Well, Hey, Sam, I appreciate you joining us here. First ever episode of hey coach it's blank podcast this is great this is everything i wanted we got the stories in there we talked a little about how you ended up in journalism i gotta bloviate and try to relate to to your career somewhat because i, I feel like there's some similarities there. no there and, is uh, no question no i uh, i really appreciate it and um you know everyone can find your work certainly at the omaha world herald they can find you on twitter as well you are readily available and that is why uh that's why you're so well known. That's why people people read your stuff, they know your stuff, they look forward to you for the interviews. And so I really appreciate your time. Everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of Hey Coach, It's Blank Podcast. We'll be back with another episode next Thursday. Remember, every Thursday, new episode drops leading up to Nebraska's opener against Minnesota. Sam, once again, appreciate it. Thanks for being on today. You bet. You bet. You bet. All right, everybody, we'll catch you next week with another episode of Hey Coach, It's Blank Podcast.